1: Operation Soft Cell was low, slow, patient, and focused, and apparently run from China. Washington and Tehran are woofing at each other, with more exchanges in cyberspace expected. Cyber due diligence is taken increasingly seriously during mergers and acquisitions. Short sighted design choices affect app security. The U.S. security clearance process gets an overhaul. Shimmers replace skimmers. Maryland's governor ups the state's cybersecurity game in response to the Baltimore ransomware event. A look at the rising tensions between the U.S., Russia, and Iran when it comes to critical infrastructure. And we'll have an explanation for yesterday's U.S. internet outage. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Tuesday, June 25th, 2019. CyberReason has released a report on a long running, extensive but highly focused campaign, Operation Soft Cell, that compromised mobile networks. It appears to be the work of Chinese intelligence services, specifically APT 10, also known as Stone Panda. It's either APT10 or someone operating just like them, as the register puts it, to express the attribution with proper caution. The soft sellers have spent the last two years and a few months lurking in some 10 mobile networks worldwide. They were quiet, patient, and focused, interested for the most part, it seems, in watching the movement and other activity of what the researchers characterized as 20 to 30 high-value targets – persons of interest to espionage services like politicians and diplomats. There's no particular evidence that Operation Soft Cell pulled content from their target's messages, but the metadata alone were valuable since such collection can yield the victim's place of work, travel, and abode, as well as whom they talked to, how long they talked, and so on. The operation avoided detection by going quiet for extended periods of time. It was, as they say, low and slow. They also installed their own VPNs in the networks they infested, which made their job easier. Those installations seem, in general, to have escaped notice. Two members of APT-10 were indicted by the U.S. Justice Department back in December on charges related to espionage, specifically with theft of intellectual property from U.S. corporations. They are, of course, not in custody, nor are they likely to be. The indictment was part of the general U.S. naming and shaming approach to Chinese cyber misbehavior. Washington and Tehran barked some more yesterday, but they didn't bite, at least not at each other, at least not yet, and at least not publicly. The U.S. did, as promised over the weekend, announce new sanctions against Iran, with President Trump warning Iran not to overestimate American patience or restraint, as both of these have limits. For its part, Iran pointed out that it could knock down an American drone any time it decided to do so, and that, quote, the enemy knows it, end quote. New sanctions directly affect senior Iranian leaders, and Tehran remarked that they were outrageous and stupid. The New York Times, which has been looking at Iranian Twitter feeds and other sources, thinks that both regime hardliners and their opponents think the whole sanction shtick has been done to death, and that it's unlikely that the latest round will change much. Their reported reactions suggest that the Americans are more or less making the economic version of a rubble jump. As one Iranian wag tweeted, The only people left to sanction are me, my dad, and our neighbor's kid. More seriously, observers tell the Washington Post that an Iranian cyber campaign, if one continues to develop, will probably resemble Tehran's earlier work, opportunistic and destructive. No before warns everyone to expect heightened rates of phishing. As Baltimore continues its recovery from the recent ransomware infestation it suffered, Maryland's governor is focusing his attention on better protecting the old line state. The CyberWire's Tamika Smith has the story.
2: Maryland joined a list of states across the country to hire a statewide chief information security officer. Governor Larry Hogan created this position along with the Maryland Cyber Defense Initiative. This new push comes after Baltimore City was hit by a ransomware attack in May, making it the second time the city was targeted. Here to talk more about this new position and the panel is Danielle Gaines. She's a reporter for Maryland Matters. It's an independent, not-for-profit news organization that covers government and politics across the state. Hi, Danielle.
0: Hi, thank you for
2: having me. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. So let's get right to it. Maryland is joining Arkansas, Massachusetts, Ohio, and Washington in creating this CISO position. Um, What is it exactly expected to do?
0: So this is going to be a new statewide chief information security officer, a similar position with kind of less authority statewide had already existed within the state's Department of Information Technology. So that position is being expanded, and that individual is going to lead something new called the Maryland Office of Security Management. And that office is going to create some uniform standards for how each state agency classifies the personal information that they accept from the public and then how they protect that personal information. That office is also going to create some centralized policies to help the state respond more swiftly if there is a cyber attack incursion in state systems. So this new
2: individual, the CISO, his name is John Evans, and he served as a chief information officer for the Department of Information Technology, and he'll be taking on this expanded role. What do we know about him?
0: So as you said, John had worked for the Department of Information Technology, and this new role is basically an expansion on that. So he'll be working with a lot more state agencies and kind of trying to get them all on the same page. He's been in Maryland for a little while. He uh, teaches cybersecurity at University of Maryland University College. He is on other positions in the state, including the Maryland Cybersecurity Council. He helped create a data center for the state that was called MD Sync, and that basically combined data for a number of social services organizations in the state to help kind of streamline and create efficiencies within those.
2: So Mr. Evans has definitely been on the front lines of this.
0: Yes, he has. And there was some reporting that at the last Meeting of the Maryland Cybersecurity Council, one of the things, so that's a different group that's not impacted at all by this executive order. It has existed since 2015. It has a bit of a different um, focus, which is protecting the state's critical infrastructure if there was some sort of breach of, you know, the electric system or the water system statewide. And so he's been a part of that council and he was talking to that council recently about how to kind of integrate state and local responses um, to cybersecurity threats.
2: The governor also created the Maryland Cyber Defense Initiative. What does that
0: include? So, the Maryland Cyber Defense Initiative includes the position, as you stated, and then that Office of Security Management. It also creates a 10 member panel called the Maryland Cybersecurity Coordinating Council. That council is going to um, consist of high-level government officials that will provide guidance on kind of broad statewide policy as it pertains to cybersecurity. Um, some members of that panel include the secretaries of the Department of Budget and Management, the Secretary of Transportation, the Superintendent of Maryland State Police, the Director of the Maryland Emergency Management Association. And that group is going to consult with outside experts as well to give kind of these broader, overarching direction to to state cybersecurity efforts.
2: So while I have you here, Danielle, let's look at Baltimore City. How are they doing after the ransomware attack back in early May?
0: The city of Baltimore is almost completely back online, not entirely. As you know, Mayor Jack Young had refused to pay a 13 bitcoin ransom as part of that ransomware attack. City services were completely halted for some time. They had to create some workarounds for real estate transactions uh, to allow people to register as candidates for the (laughs) next city election. And, you know, they're still doing some workarounds for water bills and other things. But they hope to be back online entirely in the next few weeks.
2: A lot to be done in Baltimore and definitely a lot on the front of cybersecurity across the the country. Thank you so much, Danielle, for joining the program. Thank you for having me. Danielle Gaines is a reporter for Maryland Matters. It's an independent, not-for-profit news organization that covers government and politics across the state. You can follow her at Danielle E. Gaines on Twitter.
1: And Tamika Smith joins me in studio. Uh, Tamika, where do things stand in terms of other states adopting programs like this proactively?
2: That's a really good question, Dave. When you look at the CISO position, this position isn't quite new. But what is new is having a statewide position with a statute attached to it. Hmm. So um, Maryland, in this regard, is joining about 15 states across the country including Colorado, Delaware, Florida, Illinois. These are states that actually have statutes attached to this specific position.
1: Is there a template that states are using when they're establishing the CISO position?
2: In general, when you're looking at this position across the country, there are a few things that Uh, the state wants to make sure it's actually happening. Mm. They're creating statewide security policies and IT standards, requiring information security plans and annual assessments or reporting, and also requiring that periodically security awareness training is provided for their employees.
1: Hmm. Tamika Smith, thanks so much.
2: Thank you.
1: 4Scout has released the results of a survey that outlines how cybersecurity figures in merger and acquisition due diligence... Slightly over half of the respondents say that they encountered a cybersecurity issue during due diligence that put the deal in jeopardy. Positive Technologies looks at mobile device security and finds that a prospective data thief rarely needs physical access to a phone in order to pull information from it. The root problem, the researchers find, lies in insecure data storage, and the problems with such storage all too often derives from the earliest stages of app development – where design decisions are made without fully thinking through their security implications. The U.S. Department of Defense has recently assumed a leading role in managing security clearances across the government, and it's changing some branding to signal a fresh start. The Defense Security Service will henceforth be known as the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency. By October 1st, the agency will have absorbed the National Background Investigations Bureau. Flashpoint sees a shift in the card-skimming underworld. Skimmers are on their way out, being replaced by skinnier devices known as shimmers, designed to be slipped into the card reader itself, with the data captured being eventually retrieved by the swipe of a criminal's card. And finally, Cloudflare traces yesterday's U.S. Internet outages to a cascading catastrophic failure, That began with Verizon's incautious acceptance of a BGP goof from a small Pennsylvania ISP. So it was a fumble and not an attack. And evidently, all fixed now. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. So you can focus on your core business goals, confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose SixthSense, visit sixsense.com. And joining me is Sergio Caltigeroni. He's the head of threat intelligence at Dragos. So I want to start off here, Uh, we're going to be talking about um, these increased tensions uh, between the US, Russia and Iran. And I want to start off just by getting your overall sort of high level take on this. uh, both uh, How you would describe what's going on and uh, your overall reaction to it.
3: So I think that there's three elements here that are in play. The first is, of course, the U.S. and Russian interactions and escalation that's been occurring. And then the second is, of course, the U.S. and the Iranian situation in the Middle East. So I think together uh, they pose a very unique situation where at this moment in time, the U.S. is potentially facing uh, two fronts of major cyber escalation.
1: And and these uh, these two fronts um, may themselves be allies. Of course,
3: yes. So the Russians and um, Iranians are allied uh, in certain areas uh, of common interest. Militarily, I think that the uh, the allyship has been um, maybe a bit uh, uh, less pronounced and and fairly weak. But of course, in any time of conflict that can change radically.
1: I want to focus on this uh, this blog post that you all put up recently. This is titled Five things ICS operators and critical infrastructure must do in the face of cyber escalation. Uh, let's go through this together. Uh, the first step that you list here is take the threat seriously. Yeah.
3: So the fact is that there are retaliatory options available to all of the countries involved. Um, and of course, as rhetoric and, and uh, as actions increase the escalation of tensions, then, of course, uh, countries can act and react in a very short period of time. The challenge is, of course, that no country wants to deploy, you know, military or kinetic force uh, causing a loss of life. And so cyber is a potential means of uh, using asymmetric force and warfare to cause impact and retaliate um, without necessarily losing life. So all in all, this seems to be, um, you know, a very serious situation where people will and, you know, we will see and we have seen, of course, a little bit now uh, some amount of force being used across cyberspace.
1: the second point you list here is think beyond borders. So that's really important.
3: And that's one that I think most cyber defenders um, uh, have a challenge with. It's our job as threat intelligence analysts to understand the world at large and how that interplays with cybersecurity. And of course, the key element here is that countries almost never engage in force unilaterally, and so you will likely see offensive operations conducted uh, in conjunction with or in cooperation with uh, multiple countries. So we can't just worry about what does Iran do or what's Iran going to do, but what could Iran do and potentially potentially. potentially other allies do, Um, and the same with the US, right? What could the US do as well as US allies do um, in retaliation? So we have to keep the idea of conflict broader than one
1: country versus another. And then the next one is increased visibility and threat detection.
3: Yeah, this is the one that we hit the most, right? When we walk into, we do a a threat response almost every week at Dragos uh, inside of industrial control networks. And the biggest thing we get is when we walk in, uh, we find that there's very limited, if any, telemetry uh, being collected. Uh, That's of course cybersecurity telemetry um, being collected inside of these environments. So when something happens, understanding what, what occurred and what might happen next is very hard. And so what we try to ask folks to do is that's where you have to start, which is see what you can see, gather what you can gather. And most importantly, uh, in a time of escalation like this you know go ahead and ramp that up you know you can always ramp down your collection later but uh, when it's important you need to you need to go ahead and get more data
1: and then uh, last but not least here you say uh, engage in active threat hunting yeah so threat hunting
3: does two things right one is hopefully you go and find stuff that you weren't seeing before um, but actually more, more importantly with threat hunting is that uh, when you do engage a team to conduct active threat hunting during a time of escalation uh, what it means is that you're going to be even more prepared if and when they find something um, or something happens and so for for any company that's super important um, is that you'll have a team there ready and they will have the tools and capabilities ready to roll so uh, a small investment up front to be prepared um, generally you know gives you tons of dividends later There's a lot of different ways you can attack um, critical infrastructure in different areas. And so for us, what we're seeing is a growth in that, as well as a growth in escalation. And when you see both intent and capability grow at the same time, you thereby increase the risk environment.
1: All right. Well, Sergio, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That's Sergio Caltagirone from Dragos. The blog is titled Five Things ICS Operators in Critical Infrastructure Must Do in the Face of Cyber Escalation. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire.